This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Chris and I are going to be throwing out spoilers from, from chapters beyond where we're at right now. So if you're reading along with us, and you don't want spoilers beyond the chapter, beyond chapter seven. Basically, don't even listen to this if you're not read to the to, to the. Uh... Go ahead and press stop now. Welcome to get to the good part. I'm Ryan. This is Chris. And today we are without John again. Sadly for us, but happily for him, he's in Las Vegas right now <laughs> with our buddy Adam celebrating a birthday. Good for him. He's playing some blackjack and chilling out a little bit, watching the Penguins lose to the Predators. Tonight, we're going to take a little bit of time to address some of your questions from Reddit. Uh, we're going to talk about some movie news. We're going to talk about just basically anything Ready Player One that exists outside of a chapter and uh, catch up on some of the news that you've been seeing coming through. We will also be talking about uh, something that I just read and a lot of you on Reddit had pointed out to me, which is Andy Weir's fanfic chapter of Ready Player One, which totally flips the fucking script on the book. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. Well, it acts like a new dimension, a new a new dimension of depth on Sorrento. Because when you consider everyone in IOI, like what's their motivation to really work for IOI? Like Sorrento has this tenacious, uh, uh, just he has this lust and urge for for the egg that is almost unexplainable, almost kind of unusual. Yeah, I mean, when you look at that, it looks like this is the point where he's being hired in. And the time period is just a week after Pendergast goes live with the the hint that's embedded within the book, which means that that's, you know, six months after Parsifal figured it out. So that kind of frames the time period for when all of this went down and when Sorrento joined IOI. And evidently he joined at the bottom and he climbed his way to the top. So he he really kind of had a, a bent your determination to do that. And now we understand why. Like, now we know why this is a big fucking deal to him specifically. Because we say that because Ernest Klein has basically come out at this point and said that this piece of fan fiction written by Andy Weir, and if you're going to have, if you can have a piece of fan fiction written about your book, have it written by Andy Weir. Totally. Because this yeah. is a seriously good little chapter. Before we get to the Andy Weir chapter, the fanfic chapter that everybody wants to talk about, let's talk about something very much Sorrento related, <laughs> but not related to that chapter. And uh, that has to do with, is it is it Ben Mendelsohn, the guy who's playing him? Yep. Mm -hmm. That has to do with Ben Mendelsohn. Very recently, he came out in an interview and, and said that he is going to be playing Sorrento very differently from the way that he's portrayed in the book. Now, whether that's influenced by this, this fan chapter or not um, remains to be seen. Obviously, a lot remains to be seen. We haven't seen even a poster about the movie quite yet. But what do you think? I mean, a lot of people had some strong opinions about the Ben Mendelsohn article. What do you think, man? Dude, uh, you know, when I first read it, it felt very kind of rebellious because he's saying, I'm not trying to be faithful to the book Sorrento at all. And just those first few words was kind of like, it was like a huge middle finger. Like, I don't give a fuck about the book. Right off the big bat. Big fuck you. Big fuck you, Right. But he starts to kind of go into it, and he says, look, I'm going to try to do it in context of what's going around, going on around the film. And I kind of get that, because the film itself, it, it's going to be written differently. It's going, to be, you know, it's going to be written for a movie format, so it's going to have flavors of the book within the movie. The hope is that while it's different, it doesn't 
diverge from the parts of the book that really make the book awesome. So uh, my general feeling is is that it might have been a one of those sort of artistic. Well, I'm an actor and I want to bring more to the character. Thus, fuck the book. I will do what it, the movie calls me to do. Right. I hope that's not the attitude. I hope that's not like a reflection that there are problems in in the movie aspect of this. I'm hoping this was like a planned quote and that he didn't just go off cuff and go fuck that. I'm doing it my way. What do you think? Here's my thing. Okay. The book or the script is written the way it's written, okay? I don't mean to discount an actor's contribution to any piece of film. But however Ernest Klein decides to write this screenplay, I mean, the story is going to be the same. You know, it's it's hard to tell what Ben Mendelsohn's intention is with this statement. Um, I feel like he's trying to, you know, make a statement about the character. I mean, maybe he's he's become acquainted with the character and he feels something a little bit different. Maybe he read the Weir chapter and he, you know, he discovered that there was a different motive behind Sorrento. That could be cool. If that's the case, that makes sense. Yeah. But, you know... Ultimately, the screenplay and the book are written the way that they are written. Now, he can emote differently as he plays Sorrento. He can he can have a different motivation. But ultimately, the story is told in the way that it's told. Would you not agree? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's one of those situations where I feel somewhat helpless. You know, I, you know I'm just, it's, we're on, along for the ride. The movie's going to come out. It's either going to be awesome or it's just going to fall short. And there's not a damn thing we can do about it, but we've got a great writer that's turning his own book into a screenplay, and he's doing the screenplay, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's he's involved. You got you got Spielberg. I mean, he's good for tons of shit. You know, he's just he's got he's time proven, and you've got good actors and actresses. So you know, part of it I think maybe is just noise, maybe to keep things sort of active and rumbling in the background. Maybe that's what this interview is meant to do. Uh, you know, I just hope that when it comes out that it, it falls in line with most of the book. I don't expect to be all of the book, but most of it at least. Here's the thing. If I was told the concept of Ready Player One before it came out, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, that, that was what made me pick up the book in the first place. I mean, I had heard what Ready Player One was going to be about, and I was like, this sounds fantastic. It's right up my alley. Right. You know? And I picked up the book not knowing what it was, you know, how it was going to play out. You know, I mean, you you hear a lot of detractors, especially right now with, you know, people doubting the movie. I mean, like, people were fans of the book. They doubt the movie. People were not fans of the book. Doubted the book. You know, it's. It's going to stand on its own. Right. You're never short of detractors when you put something out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's it's one of those situations where I, I I don't really have a hard time blocking out the noise. Whether it's Ready Player One, the book, put into a movie or not, doesn't really matter. Because the movie will be exactly what Ernest Klein intended the movie to look like. And it will be led by Steven Spielberg. Right. So the gist here is, even if it's a different story, it's the same fucking author. Right. He's telling the story he wants to tell in a different format. He's like, what What he's telling you is like, okay. this is what I would have made it look like if you could see what I was thinking. Right, right. You know, and, and, and here's the thing. I'm, I'm not just a fan of Ready Player One. I'm a fan of Ernest Klein. I'm a fan mm-hmm. of his writing. It's the most fun I have had maybe in my entire life reading a book it's just fun yeah i think that's it's why people great fun. i think that's why people listen to it over and over again like a lot exactly. of the people we've talked to are like i just listen to it every other month i listen to it's it five or six times it's a fucking vacation man yeah. it's it's it, it is a literary vacation <laughs> it really is it's dessert i mean it's, it, it is it is 40 chapters of dessert and i love it for that reason don't take it away from me you know what i mean yeah, I mean, this is going to be his story told within the the visual consumption, the visual media. And he's going to show it to you the way he wants to show it to you, just like he wrote it the way he wanted it written. 
So if the if the characters change, that's actually okay because it's still his control and his story. Okay, and I want I want to appeal to anybody out there who's listening that might be a collaborator in any way and enjoy it. Right now, this this book this this lifestyle of you know being into video games, uh, being into pop culture and all that kind of thing, I feel like to a large extent attracts a lot of introverted kind of people, you know, and introverted people might not be inclined to be collaborators, right? That may be the case with Klein. I don't know. I don't know the guy. I I can't, I can't assume what his intentions were or what kind of a person he is. He may be very extroverted. Who knows? But I know this, okay? Anytime you enter into a collaboration with another person, whether or not you agree with that person 100% of the time, regardless, you're going to have that moment where the person wrangles what, and you know, your idea or your, your line of thought into something that is more, is, is more simplistic or more direct, I guess is a better way to say it. Um, and, 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 and finds a way to the audience more directly. Now, that's something that Steven Spielberg is really good at. Mm-hmm. If you look back on Steven Spielberg's movies, that's something that he's just absolutely excellent at. He is very good at direct storytelling. Ernest Klein is also pretty good at direct storytelling. But, as we've seen from detractors and things like that, he kind of winds off on a on a, a nostalgia path here and there, right? Mm. I think that Ernest Klein opened his mind enough to work with Steven Spielberg in a way that he said, okay, you read my book. Tell me what you think. And I'm going to take my hands off the wheel for a second. And I'm going to let you kind of guide this one home. At the end of the day, you got to trust that everybody involved wants the same thing, even if they approach it differently. Right. Yeah. It's not going to be a different story. At the end of the day, it's going to be Ready Player One. There will be different elements. There will be different aspects to the story. But at the end of the day, it will be Ready Player One. And it'll be something that all of us in the fan community, all of us that fucking love this book, have been wanting. You know, I mean, we're all a little bit worried about a sequel or a trilogy. I think at one point he teased a trilogy about Ready Player One. I don't know how I feel about that. But if the Andy Weir article is any sort of an indicator about what it's like when you bring in an expert to give you a different spin on the story. I am entirely fucking optimistic. Yep. I agree. You agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like at the beginning of our conversation, I wasn't sure because it's just the rebelliousness of the character of this actor. Uh, But you're right. The end result is, is that everybody wants, everybody wants a good movie and everybody knows that, that the, the main attractor is the book. There is a core that they're going to have to stay true to. But you can't, you cannot chain the movie and the screenplay to the book. You just right. can't expect a good movie because they're so, they're different mediums. So let's let's talk about this. I'm gonna go. I'm I'm gonna put on my tinfoil hat here, folks, a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> just for a second. And I'm gonna say, what if Andy Weir's involvement with this fanfic now? Andy Weir, for those of you who don't know, wrote The Martian. This guy is also a in no position to book. sit down and write fanfic about Ready Player One. Unless he just fucking absolutely loved it, which you can tell from the way he wrote it, he absolutely did. Okay, I'm not I'm, I'm not saying he didn't. But take a look at this piece. I mean, it's it's maybe a two two or three page chapter. It's very short. But it's fucking great. It's so good. It adds depth to the story. It really does. And here's my tinfoil hack conspiracy, right? 
a lot of the background noise that you hear about the Ready Player One movie is people are really worried. Like we were just saying that the movie's going to be a departure from the book. And I, I don't know. I love, I absolutely love the book and I want it to be just page for page, the same fucking thing and all that kind of thing. I mean, that can be a lot of noise for a guy like, like Ernest Klein, who's trying to make the best movie he can having never made a movie before having never written, written a novel before this, you know, well, I can't say that because he did make fanboys, didn't he? I don't, I don't know. He did make fanboys, but outside of that. Okay. So, you know, somebody like Ernest Klein writing this book, this is his, you know, this is his first venture out there. You know, it's, it's gotta be tough. I mean, you're working with, I mean, read the fucking book. Working with Steven Spielberg for a guy like Ernest Klein has got to be the most nerve-wracking experience of his life. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, when you when you take a look, we're talking about we're talking about Steven Spielberg here, right? So we know that this isn't going to the, the the movie has to be different from the book because they've already said that Steven Spielberg's pretty much taking out any reference to his works. Like right. he does not want the movie to be an homage to himself. And I get that. That's that's uncomfortable to take somebody else's flattery and then turn that into a movie that you have to then make look good, which makes yourself look good. That just, I, it's a weird sort of self-braggery inception that, that I could see makes someone uncomfortable. But right off the sure. bat, we know that any mention of Spielberg movies is right out the door. And that's, yeah. and that's a lot of shit from the 80s. So- so I'll add this, okay? Now, this is this is where my tinfoil hat pops on. What if they they got a hold of Andy Weir, who is clearly a fucking fan of this book, clearly a fan of science fiction, right? And they said, "Look, people are detracting a little bit. They're saying that they're nervous about the way the movie's going to come out because it's going to be different from the book." And Ernest Klein was basically saying, yeah, it's going to be completely fucking different from the book. It's just, it's just going to be, it's going to be different from the book. So let's give him a taste of how different it could be. And guess what? That two chapter, that one chapter, that two or three page little excerpt from Andy Weir, which is completely off the script of the original Ready Player One was so loved and welcomed by the community who loves Ready Player One that I think we should all just settle down a little bit. <laughs> cool the fuck off. Cool off a little bit. I mean, just just trust him. Trust, trust the fucking author. The author's involved. Steven Spielberg's involved. Just cool off. Yeah. Let's see how this comes out. Let's just say this, right? Let's let's talk about our favorite moments in the book that you want to see make it into the movie. If you had to pick one moment, if if Ernest Klein and Steven Spielberg were to do a complete departure from the book in the movie, what is one thing that you say cannot be sacrificed? Chris, I'm pretty sure I know what yours is going to be. I'm lost, man. I, I, just give me a second. I'm... What is, what is one moment? It's, it's, I love talk scenes. So I'm a huge Tarantino fan because dialogue to me is important and dialogue in a movie I think is important. And too much action seems to detract from the depth of a movie. So for me, it's the scene when Artemis and Wade meet. That was one of mine. And, and that was definitely know, they, one of mine. There, there's going to have to be chemistry. There, she's going to have to just be fucking charming in the VR world. Uh, and from all reports, like nearly half the movie is going to be, be VR videoed. Uh, but there's, there's just going to have to be this pervasive, charming sort of communication, this, this connection between these two characters, because this is the chapter that really... The moment he sees her, Sidney Lauper's got to start playing. <laughs> time <laughs> after time. Okay. <laughs> It was like the stars in his eyes or some shit. Is that what it is? <laughs> Fuck. 
<laughs> so there's just this moment where he's met his fan crush in person, and she's kind of grilling his shit for being there. I would love to see this moment because there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of connection and emotion, and there's just a lot of opportunity for character development. Right. Mine mine is, and I, I really do feel like this is this is extremely important to setting the tone of the book, is the moment that Wade slips out of school and goes to H's basement for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got to be done perfectly. And like, I've thought in my head every time that I, every time, I think this is the inspiration for this discussion. Every time that I try, like, that I try to wrap my mind around how the movie will look. The first thing I think about is H's basement. The first time that Wade walks in there. Well, H's, and how you meet H. Well, H's basement is the first introduction to the variety of the Oasis because his basement is this right. cornucopia of characters from all different worlds, right? Huge guns and ears and just different. different... It's the, it's, it's the first time you see the bounty hunters in empire. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's just it I imagine that this is that first moment where you're really introduced to the variety of characters and possibly also in comparison to just how plain Wade is in the Oasis and and how he is contrasting to them. But he's Parzival in there. Well, I mean, Parzival. He's not Wade. Yes. You know, that's 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 the like really true, really and truly. That's the first time you meet Parzival, right? Is when he walks into that chat room. So that's that's the that's a really pivotal moment in the book because it's 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 the transition from Wade, because he's still Wade in school, to Parzival, who for all intents and purposes in this book is our fucking superhero. Anyways, Andy Weir. <laughs> Wrote this piece of fanfic. And it's it's fucking phenomenal. It's it's really good. W- what are the things that you like about it? You know, when I first started reading it, uh, you can tell it's a different author just because the feel is slightly different. And that kind of cheeses me out. Uh, but it's Andy Weir, and I also really like The Martian. So I'm not treating it like any old point of fan fiction here obviously approaching this from the fact that it's just another author i really love kind of tackling this and when i saw the direction it was kind of going with this uh, i knew we were where we were going to end up to a certain degree i knew it was some point of reference he has a grudge against the oasis but what i liked at the end of this is that it gives him the kind of purpose that justifies the tenacity that he shows in the book in getting the egg. You know, it's not just out of spite. It's not because he's trying to beat these rascally, snobby little children. Uh, he is willing to kill because he has experienced death at the hands of the Oasis. And anybody that's caught in it and dies because of it, it was going to happen anyhow. Like, I could see a sort of level of rationalization now to his entire movement. And I don't see him so much as a good guy. I see him as somebody whose purpose is now an ends justifies the means kind of approach where the ends might be good, but his means are bad. And whenever you take a story and you pivot it around the ends justifies the means, you have a bad guy. You have a bad guy who does bad things because he believes that the end result is justified. And that kind of, humanizes him as a bad guy you go well he's not that bad because i kind of understand where he's coming from but any any ends justifies the means story that i've read is usually planted on the shoulders of of the bad guy well let's let's as they say start at the beginning (laughs) before he was sorrento in weir's storyline he was lucero in weir's storyline <laughs> and one of the first discussions the the opening discussion um in in Weir's in in Weir's chapter of Ready Player 1 is Lucero 
who will become Sorrento, talking to... It's not an NPC. We don't really fully flesh out the other character, do we? No, not really. I mean... Uh, no, the other characters it's, are Gunters. It's, right, it's a story device. There's There's one other person there who's kind of on... I won't say the same wavelength because they, I, I think they're diametrically opposed as to their interpretation of the Oasis, but their opening discussion is about how the Oasis affects the real world, which is something that if you've listened to this podcast for long enough, is a recurring theme that we've brought up, uh, you know, multiple times. Is the Oasis you know, the cause or the effect of the state of affairs in the world. In his mind, he has a very clear answer to that question. And his answer is? The oasis is the cause. Right. You know, he, I mean, that's, I think it's a, it's a very much a, a chicken or egg kind of argument. And I think it can be made on both ends, but he is absolutely polarized from his experiences that, that it is the oasis that has made things specifically worse. Okay, so let me ask you this. Is he wrong? You know, at, and that is what makes the ends justifies the means a, a difficult thing because it humanizes a person. You go, I understand why he's doing it. And I'm not even sure if coming from just this little chapter, if I was Sorrento, if I would do it differently. But in the grander scale of things... Would that be your motivation, though? It would have to be. You know? Well, I'm saying, would it be your motivation if you were in the same position? Would it be my motivation... If you were a gunter. If I was a gunter. Or, in this case, not a gunter, but still looking for the egg. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason, diametrically opposed to gunters, even though you're after the same thing. <laughs> Uh, he does Whatever. he does make a distinct difference. Um one thing that I just I don't know why they go off on that, but he he doesn't vilify business because he sees business as, you know, it's the one thing that's kind of tried to help keep things up. And it's something I was thinking about today. You know, as the world continues to corrode in this world frame the oasis will eventually go away of its own accord. It'll the power will become too expensive. People will start dropping offline. Um, you know, it, you have to you have to see it that if the oasis is pulling people away from reality and reality is crumbling, the oasis will crumble eventually. So, is he wrong? He's wrong in in the methods he takes. I don't think he's wrong in his purpose. Like here's an example of an individual who I would say doesn't have character, but has the same kind of drive, the same kind of deep-seated intellect and desire. Whereas Parzival is, is opposite of that. Same kind of desire and drive, but he has solid character. He has rules. So uh, I, wa I, wanted, I want to make a distinction here, okay? Because it's important to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to make a distinction here. You're saying that he's wrong in his desire to destroy the Oasis. No, I'm saying he's wrong in his methods for going about it. Okay. How is he wrong in his methods? He blows up a stack. Well, no, I'm I talking mean, he about... He kills people in the real still, world. Hold on. We're still talking about the weird part. Here. Well, that's fine. But what it eventually turns into, what it evolves into... This is just the preface. What we're talking about, what it evolves right. into. But let's take it. Let's take it frame by frame. Right. Okay. Let's let's put aside what he does in future chapters. Okay. For right now, let's let's talk about the new canon that we've received. Let's talk about Sorrento as as basically as he's framed here in this chapter as a fucking antihero. Okay. Yeah. He now. Regardless of what your feelings are on Sorrento in future chapters, mm -hmm. here, it would be impossible. It's impossible for me to read this chapter and fucking hate Sorrento. Did you read this chapter and you were like, this is the birth of a supervillain? No. Or did you read this chapter or did you read this chapter and say... He's like Anakin. I get where he's coming from. 
you know, it, 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 regardless of your opinion of, of how that falls as far as one, two, and three are well, concerned. Let's, let's it, just sidestep. Let's just sidestep Christian. Just, just chill with me for Christian a fucking, okay? Just hold on a second. Uh, he is like Anakin. <laughs> like, you watch the first three movies, and you can't really feel... Or I said Christian Hayden. I meant... <clears throat> let's just sidestep Hayden Christians here. Uh, you you know when when you watch the first three movies, that is the, the sort of the ends justifies the means, and for him, the ends is saving his wife and kids. Everything he's done is to keep her alive in a future that he knows eminently is going to kill her. That is his struggle. So everything he does, killing the kids, you know, defying the Jedi, everything is to keep her in his life. And then he fails at that. So while you can hate all the shit he does or how he gets to that place, initially when it starts rolling and you realize his purpose and his drive, I, I was kind of in the same position. Like, I can't hate this character because I don't know that I would have done it any differently given the same circumstance. I'm not sure if I would have ended up in the same place, but definitely from the beginning here with Sorrento, I can't say that I would do it differently. I would totally but join you're talking- IOI. You're talking apples and oranges here. Well, I don't think so, but go on. But, okay. <laughs> you have two characters. We, dis- we disagree and get to the good part sometimes. That's the good part. We have two characters that have no. an, an ins justify the means dilemma. Right. And, and eventually get to a place where they do progressively worse things. But we're not there yet. We're talking about the beginning. And, and the story is designed to make them, to humanize them so that you can relate and sympathize while at the same time seeing them progress in a bad direction. But you you skipped, if 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 that's the narrative that you're going to go with, mm-hmm. then you skipped the best part of the Anakin story. The only part of the Anakin story, to me, that's salvaged, you know, Revenge of the Sith. Okay, what's that? Is it the mom scene? No. Okay, good. Don't, don't make this uncomfortable. <laughs> not that, no it's it's not it's that, that mom scene it's okay so you have to pare it down to the human being right it has to come back to i'd human say level. in the third movie he was pared down quite a bit no that's what i'm that's the point that i'm getting at okay oh wow. <laughs> is it too soon wow. No, no, it's not too soon. Little this off is the one knee. like if if you want to if Little you want to make an assassination arm. joke, make it on Anakin. Cut like make a joke about him getting carved up like a fucking Christmas turkey. I'm I'm I'm, I'm into that. All right, I'm fine. You're okay with okay. This. That's that's fair game. But no, what what I'm talking about though is that the difference between what you're talking about and and, and the Anakin story how it relates to Sorrento is that it's based off of pure emotion. Okay. Like that was, that was Anakin's division from the Jedi. Right. Was the Jedi told him you can't feel anything. And Anakin was like, well, I feel shit. So am I, am I wrong in relation to the story? Anakin's biggest problem with the Jedi was that he's not allowed to fall in love. That he's not allowed to get too emotionally invested in something. Right? Right. That plays back into Weir's storyline. I think to a certain degree. Because Sorrento is making a decision that on an emotional level is going to hurt a lot of people. But he feels that it's entirely necessary to drive the world forward. I, uh, I, I, that is not my take of it. But in relation to, to Sorrento in this particular chapter, you are talking about two individuals when you're comparing Anakin, early Anakin to him, and that is a a drive that's purely based on the on emotion. And whereas Anakin's is more driven by love, and and then by his rage 
for what is inevitably going to take his love away from him and what he's fighting against and what he has to that's do to keep exactly, it. That's exactly, you just described Sorrento's entire motivation. Yeah, there. that's why I compared the two. Yeah. Only Sorrento's is revenge, and that's a very different emotion. There's no love how here. How is it revenge? Uh, I'm interested. It, well, how is it revenge? He's going to destroy the Oasis. And because of that, because it killed his sister, that's what he blames as killing his sister. He can justify or rationalize that it might save people, but that is not what he's doing in this chapter. He very simply said, the reason why our world sucks, the reason why my sister died, and why she was found days later after she was dead in her haptic chair is the Oasis. And I am going to end the Oasis. But he's not saying he's doing it to save the world. He's saying, I'm going to end the Oasis because my sister got killed and I'm going to make some money doing it. I'm going to sell it off. So, two questions. Hmm. First, is revenge not an emotion? Well, yeah, it is. That's why I said it was a different emotion. Okay. So, revenge is an emotion. Yeah, huh? All right. Second, does that motivation, no matter how ill-conceived, benefit humanity? That's such an odd question. Uh, all emotions benefit the individual for their survival. But he frames it around the benefit of humanity. How so? Right? He says he says that ending the Oasis would be the best thing for humanity. My question is, is he entirely wrong in that statement? Where does he say that it's the best thing for humanity? I don't remember intention being necessarily for humanity here. He says that it fucked up humanity, but I don't think he's saying ending it is the best thing for humanity. He's implying. It's the implication. Uh, I'm not even seeing where he's implying that. I just, I he see. He is, though. No, no, no. He he definitely is. Okay, show he me He definitely where. is. He's, think about it this way, right? right? He's not coming out and saying, I need to end the Oasis because my sister died. Because that would fall flat. That would fall flat. Like, immediately that would be batted out. What he says is that the Oasis is basically the downfall of humanity. We've put our heads in the sand. But but that's so not saying that it's going to make humanity better. I, I, think, I think you're reaching to disprove a point. Because what he's saying when he's saying that is, this is what caused my sister to take meth and yada, 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 and, and, and die. Now, maybe that was his true motivation. Maybe that was his entry point into the theory that Oasis was burying your head in the sand. Okay. But regardless, he believes that humanity is burying their heads in the sand. So whatever his juncture point was, that is now his motivation. And he states it very clearly at the beginning of the chapter that the Oasis is not what you think it is. Now, I'm not detracting from what you're saying. What you're saying is absolutely valid. But I think that his motivation comes from something a little bit deeper than that. Whereas he connected at that juncture point of his sister dying. He bought in. And he understands that the Oasis may be Something that is sold as humanity's cure, when it could be very much humanity's ill. Well, I have no doubt that he believes that that it's. I think he sees the oasis as a whole as bad. I don't think that his removing the oasis is either good or bad for society. From reading this, I agree with that. It doesn't seem that he cares, and in fact, he very specifically says. When somebody comes to him and says, look, the Oasis does tons of good for people, that there are schools that are the best primary education systems in the world, and they're free. And he says, yeah, whatever. Totally dismisses any potential right. benefits. And he says, a few PR students doesn't absolve GSS of their sins. You know what they right. are. Drug dealers. They sell escapism. He's basically saying... I am going to shut this shit down because no matter what good you think the Oasis might give, all that's bullshit, it's evil. And that's not okay. doing any good necessarily for everyone else. I think he just sees it as a, as, a, as a revenge plot. So right now, 
the United States is facing an opiate epidemic. There's a lot of people who, you know, had back injuries or were going through a tough time or whatever reason mm -hmm. they they're they're taking opiates, right? You know, the opiates for the people who need it are are are, are necessary. Mm -hmm. They're not just good; they're necessary. Right. The opiates for people who don't need it are a fucking poison. The oasis for people who do need it is necessary. The oasis for people who maybe don't need it or. I agree. Uh, there is a middle ground. And I think the difference here is with the way he's approaching it is he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater and his approach to dealing with it. It's very Karl Marx. It's, it's, I don't want to he's compare saying burn all the fucking Vicodin. No, he's no, he's, what he's saying is he's, com he's comparing it to how Karl Marx compared religion to opium. You know, that, that religion is the opium of the people. It is a delusion that people get comfortable in and thus should be completely done away with. And there is, there is, sure, there are some negatives, but there are some goods that come out of it. It's true about if not all things, a lot of things. But to have this pure bent that all of it just needs to go is is a, it has the potential to hurt a lot of people, which is the reason why I don't think he gives a damn who it helps. It's just a matter of he sees it as bad. No one's going to convince him of otherwise. His sister died as a result, so that's that's anecdotal proof of his sort of theory here. And thus, when he gets in control, it goes completely away. That is his dilemma of uh, of the ends justifies the means is whatever it takes, because in his mind, the end result is better than a hundred people being murdered, a thousand people being murdered. It doesn't matter. A million people. If he had a million people killed in his pursuit to have the oasis removed, it wouldn't matter, because that's not what he's in it for. That makes sense. That makes sense. So yeah, split decisions. I mean, you you can think one way or another about Sorrento. I think that's what this entire chapter is about is defining Sorrento as a character. I think it's also about, you know, Andy Weir was trying to give him a different motivation, which I don't think is a really bad thing in the context of the book, do you? I don't know that he had a motivation in the book. Uh, all you knew was that he was just the IOI head guy and, you know, it just seems like he had a ridiculous bent on doing his job. And this adds a level of passion that's kind of like, yes, that fucking fits really well. It, it definitely justifies his passion to get to the egg first. Yeah, and in the book, they don't really frame him as a person with passion. But regardless, somebody brought up on the subreddit a long fucking time ago, and I'm talking about when we first started the podcast, and I could not wait to get to the Sorrento chapter so I could bring it up to John, because it's one of John and I's favorite fucking things but do you know where sorrento's badge number or his employee number comes from i do now okay what is it it's the prison number of alex the main character from stanley kubrick's film adaption of the clockwork launch it's actually <laughs> it's actually from anthony burgess's uh novel of of so then it's good that Stanley Kubrick kept that detail in the movie. Prior to the movie. Yes. I Did he? It, it's funny. Because I thought it was just in the novel. Wikipedia actually has an entry for 655321. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so you just Googled it right just now. just fucking Googled it right now. <laughs> you goddamn bastard. You asked. I was trying to throw out a fucking surprise. It's you a surprise. Do that but, I mean, I don't know how thing. it's. I you know I only got through halfway through Clockwork Orange, you know, before it just lost me. I didn't actually Are get to serious? the. I did not get to the good shit. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. You guys are going to listen to this podcast probably on Thursday or Friday or Saturday. Who knows when this fucking thing is going to come out? Whenever we get it edited, but at some point this weekend, Chris will be at my homestead. And we will be watching Clockwork Orange. We'll report back on that. All right. Yeah, you've got to see it, dude. It's, god damn it, one of my favorite movies. Uh, I've not watched it all the way through, but I know that it is a huge movie for some people. Like, it's like, like for you, favorite. So, sure. I'm so glad this chapter is written. But it's a really good example of a breaking point between 
what what you expect to be good or you expect to be bad. I mean, like like if if you were to trust Wade, if Wade is going to be become the purveyor of you know society going forward, mm-hmm. he's going to be the the new Halliday. And he's going to tell people to keep burying your heads in the sand if that's the way that Sorrento sees it. And I think that's the way that some people who read the book see it. I mean, is is Sorrento a hero for saying you guys are are living in a fucking waking dream and I'm going to cut it off and now we have to deal with the problems that the world is actually dealing with? Otherwise, there will be no no oasis is is Sorrento wrong? I gotta say, as a fan of the book and a fan of Parzival, in the weird chapter, I am not too far off from from Sorrento. I kind of agree. Well, Wade's kind of like that. He's already reached a place where he's like, you know, I'm I'm hot shit in the Oasis, but he gets out of his haptic and his suit and his haptic and his apartment is a jail cell where the Oasis is merely uh, not a reality. It's that point where he's kind of going through that lonely spell, and he's reached that. I think the difference is is that he is in a better place when he gets the egg to make the kinds of decisions that need to be made and to do it with his head screwed on well because he understands that it is a prison and that the world is shit. And his plan was, fuck it, I'm going to just get in a spaceship and take off. His whole concept was make take the money, and desert Earth because somewhere else is fucking better. So he's so in that what place you're saying, too. So what you're saying is that the ideology that Wade has going into the contest versus when he finds the egg are completely different. Yes. I think he evolves from, he matures. Like the innocence you talked about initially, or I'm, I'm not sure... The innocence you talked about initially, I think, fades off as his experience, as the attempts to kill him set in, as the the competition gets real, his naivety, it sloughs off over time. And when you get to the end of the book, I think he finds himself in the same place that Halliday eventually found himself, which was, in the end, it's really making contact with people. That matters, which is why at the end of the experience of looking for the eggs, it requires three. And he came to that place and Halliday wanted to drag him through that place to say, look, here's the red button, because I knew it would need to be potentially pressed someday. Even Halliday knew that shit was getting bad and maybe this is the answer. So that's that's an interesting perspective, because I was framing Wade as. Batman before the Capitol. You're framing Wade as Batman before the tragedy. As if Bruce Wayne is a child before his parents were killed became Batman. I think, you know, his parents died, so he knew what reality was like. I think he had... You're talking about Batman. No, I'm talking about Wade. Oh, okay. His parents died. I mean, his he, mom found dead due to drug overdose. Dead. They died. And they worked online. He had to escape from his mom doing basically Oasis prostitution in the other room. And his dad died because, you know, he had to steal food in a world where they didn't have enough money. So he was already to that place of tragedy. And he was having to live with asshole aunt and boyfriend in a, in a shithole. So I think his reality was very well set. He realized... He had to play the lottery because there was no other way out. Like the Oasis was the only solution to his immediate problem, even though I think that early on it wasn't clearly stated that the Oasis was as much the problem. I'm coming around to the idea that that he knew that the Oasis was a problem because his joy wasn't in taking over the Oasis. It was escaping fucking Earth. Right. Which makes him... Perfect fucking nemesis in the weird chapter 
two Sorrentos. Yeah, well, that's why I said they're alike. But that's they're, why there's so much depth to that chapter. They're, they're very much alike, but they're very much polar opposites in how they approach right. the situation. And it's a agreed upon situation. They realize how they perceive the situation. Yeah, that the Oasis mm. is a problem. But the difference is, is that Parsifal sees it as a place where it's a problem, but it's like a vice. And Sorrento views it as as there's no good can come of it and it must all go. And I don't think Parsifal is is a throw the baby out with a bathwater kind of guy. You're you're admittedly not a comic book guy, right? Yeah, that that's fair to say. Okay. So like a common trope in comic books is is humanity worth saving? You know, are they their their own worst enemy kind of thing? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think I see that a lot in this in this comparison. Like Sorrento's the villain because he says humanity is its own worst enemy. It will fight against itself to survive. Right. Wade is a bit more optimistic. Wade sees the value in humanity. He sees the value in comfort. He he has empathy. In a way that Sorrento could not have. I don't. Right? I don't think he develops empathy until he really in, until further in the book, until he meets up with the people that he's met online. Like his only empathy is for the characters in the Oasis, humanity as a whole. He has segregated himself from. He shows empathy at the very beginning of the book. How? Anybody in Wade's situation that was self-aware to to the extent that Wade is would hate his mother would hate his father he talks about them with a sort of ambivalence oh yeah like it, wade could have had the same reason as sorrento he could have equal reason to hate the oasis and destroy it but he takes a different track like he could hate it because his mom was a prostitute in it and because in the end she died also from a drug overdose uh, because the world was going to shit, he could have blamed the Oasis for that. A lot of room for that, but he didn't. So which which side do you take? Um, definitely Parzival Wade. You know, I, I believe that you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because when you start doing that, wow, you could just eliminate a lot of shit that does some good, even though it does some bad. I would agree with you if I were destroying the real world. <laughs> it, if... If you destroy the Oasis and you destroy the one stable economy in the real world, removing the Oasis is destroying the real world. That is the end, that is the end result of an apocalypse. And I Period. cannot think of a better way to end <laughs> our discussion on the weird chapter than that. <laughs> so, so that's the weird chapter. If you haven't read it, Go out and fucking read it. I mean, it's a piece of art. It's it's fantastic. If you're a fan of Ready Player One, you're gonna fucking love it. This is the kind of story that makes me wish that he would write books from the angles of the different characters, including Sorrento. Like I'd love to read a book that was just Sorrento and his and his, he may, and his take. He may very well do that. <laughs> I get it. I we don't know. He's already said this is gonna be a trilogy. So this would be a good way to tackle it. Yep. Is to go about it from the different characters. Before we sign off for the evening, we want to bring up one last thing. Um, and this comes from a, you know, a guy who's been a fan of the show. Uh, he's reached out a lot and hopefully we're going to have him on, on an episode uh, sometime in the near future. A guy named Gabriel Rodriguez. Uh, Gabriel is actually a teacher, but he also uh, hosts his own blog. We're going to put a link up to that wherever we post the show this week. Gabriel wrote a really nice thing about Get to the Good Part in his in his blog. But also, Gabriel went ahead and he, he sent a message to Ernest Klein on Twitter saying, will we have a trailer before the end of the year? To which Ernest Klein himself responded, affirmative. So, what movie do you think that's going to be trailered on? Because I know that a lot of people have an opinion on that. 
Okay, so <laughs> I I think it'll be in Less Jedi. Okay, and here's why. We don't have a poster. We don't have a teaser. We have nothing yet. Okay. December is when Last Jedi comes out. December is also the month that Ready Player One was supposed to come out. The thing is, uh, Last Jedi was coming out at the same time in an effort to not compete with it. And I completely agree with that. They decided to move it up to March. Here's a couple things to know. First of all, Kathleen Kennedy. If you don't know that name, I strongly encourage you to look it up. Kathleen Kennedy is at the forefront of most of the things you probably love. She was behind E.T. She was behind the Goonies. Most of Steven Spielberg's films. I mean, she was just, she was there for most of it. She was actually handed the reins to Star Wars when they went over to uh, to Disney and still remains at the forefront of Star Wars releases for Disney. Okay? She also happens to be a big fan and a very close friend of Steven Spielberg. Now, all of those things together point to me that the big the, the big release trailer for Ready Player One will come out three months before the movie with The Last Jedi. Now, I realize for so many reasons that what I'm saying is fucking asinine. Because you would figure that Ready Player One would get a trailer far before that. Um, I hope I'm wrong about what I'm guessing. Because I would like to see it as soon as possible. But if it were me... I could see some merit in releasing a trailer with The Last Jedi three months before the movie comes out. Here's why. First of all, you're hitting your target audience. People who are going to see, you know, The Last Jedi are probably going to go see the Ready Player One movie. And then secondly, it's probably going to be one of the biggest draws to an IMAX theater of any movie that's going to come out. So you're really going to get to show your fucking stuff when it comes to Ready Player One. Would you agree? I agree. You totally need an IMAX to do that. I think. Uh, I think a lot of big movies that come out will be uh, will be on IMAX. I, I think there's potentially one other candidate that might be as good, if not better, than Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Okay. Put down the crack pipe and tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, you, are, you doing, are you doing a crack pipe version of Darth Vader right now? <laughs> I'm your father. Yeah. I'm gonna go pick up some double cheeseburgers from the McDonald's. I mean, I mean, I mean, want I'm your father. I'm your, I'm your daddy. I'm your, your mom was awesome, dude. I'm your father. I'm your father. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So <clears throat> let's look at it from a timing perspective and also from a, a, a film referential perspective. What could potentially be as good, if not better, than Star Wars? What's mentioned in the book and is pivotal to even one of the keys? Is Rush putting out a new album? <laughs> no. But <laughs> but Blade Runner 2049's coming out this year. Yes, I saw that. And it'll be out in in October, so that puts it at that six month mark. Okay. Uh, and you know, like I said, it's when you're talking about the book, Blade Runner let's is give, more pivotal to the book than let's give props to the guy that brought that up on Reddit. Uh, what was his name? I, I didn't get it from that. But somebody did bring up the uh, the remake of, uh, or not remake, but the sequel to Blade Runner, which I will be going to see. I'll be going to see. Yeah, you'll be going to see it with me. Uh, I imagine I, we'll see that together. <laughs> uh, but I should see the first one first. You haven't seen Blade Runner? Not all the way through. Not all the Mother way through. Motherfucker, are you serious? <laughs> I, I've seen parts of it, man, just not from beginning to end. Okay, well, all right. So, new plan. 
gunters out there listening. <laughs> Chris has got this a weekend. Study we'll up. be watching Blade Runner, <laughs> and, and not Clockwork Orange. We we got to do that. We'll set it up for this. All one. right, all right. Deal. Yeah, deal. Let's do that. Deal. All right, all right. So, those of you who have read Ready Player One, and those of you who have stuck around with us for this entire fucking lucid dream of a conversation. We appreciate it. I'm Ryan. I'm Chris. Until next time, so long. So I got a question for you. Sure. Right, are we going to do a gentleman's bet here on what movie the trailer trailer comes out before? You want to? Yeah, why not? You, you you want to do Blade Runner? I want to do Blade Runner. Okay, I want to do Last Jedi. All right. I don't mind losing a couple. Let's. let's it's a say, gentleman's uh, bet. We don't have to bet any money. Well, let's bet something. Just make it interesting. Two dollars. Two dollars. Two dollars. <laughs> Two dollars. I didn't. <laughs> I don't have a dime on me. Didn't say a dime. I said said two (laughs) dollars. Perfect. And somehow we worked a better off dead (laughs) reference. It fucking did, yes.